welcome to the second episode of The Art of the Matter. On tonight's show, we will present an interview with the Treasurer of the Union, where I'll probe him about his plans to deal with the onset of the credit crunch and ways in which all you students listening can help with the Uni's financial difficulties. But first, it is my honour to present a probing, socially motivated documentary entitled Hang-Ups and Hangovers, The Ins and Outs of the Cambridge Drink Sock. Please enjoy. Drinking societies are the greatest example of Cambridge's work-hard, play-hard mentality. They are the longest-running social clubs in the entire uni, celebrated the world over for their legendary debauchery and hedonism. After a difficult week of lazing around, smoking and chatting, the average Cambridge boffin simply demands an opportunity to kick back and relax. So they gather together, under an ironic comic group name, in a pub or bar to socialise, mingle and, most importantly, discover alarming new ways of knocking back alcoholic beverages. But are these organisations as innocent as they seem? Or do the pools of vomit littering our city streets mask a deeper evil? Is it in fact possible that drinking society culture is draining the life from the University of Cambridge as we know it? To answer these questions, I have conducted a detailed series of interviews with subjects from all sides of the drinking society culture. But listener beware, for my investigations have taken me deep into the mentality of this social scene. And some of the people I spoke to are highly disturbed, psychologically damaged individuals. To begin, I went straight to the source, freshers. Each year, a new young battalion arrives, each with a fresher face and a tighter bottom than the last. They are the lifeblood of the drinking society. Without them and their steady decline into alcoholism, these organisations would have died out generations ago. But why are they so keen to join up and sign their student lives away? I asked a fresher who recently signed up to the Homerton Blackguards to explain. Well, I guess it was just boredom and maybe a little bit of fear. I just arrived at uni and was really scared about having to make friends, so after the first couple of hours when <laughs> no one talked to me, I, I just signed up to as many drinking societies as I could. Oh, which ones did you choose? Can't even remember, I just sat on my computer for hours, panicking, emailing as many as I could. I definitely approached the Sydney Sussex Spankers and the St John's Johnnies, but I must admit, the one I really wanted was the uh, Thundercocks. I've never heard of the Thundercocks, where are they from? Newnham. Uh, but to be a fun, you have to sign up literally decades in advance. It's so competitive there. There's all sort of like politics and cock blocking. In the end, the Ormonton Blackguards were the only people that would have me. They're gagging for fresh young lads. So it wasn't hard to get in. What? Was there no audition process? Not really. Once I made sure I was a loud-mouthed idiot, that seemed enough. There was a proper big initiation process, though. Oh, what did you have to do? It was really, really tough, actually. I thought the drinking societies were, you know, about having fun and making friends and stuff. But the moment I arrived, I realised it was actually like boot camp. They want it to be a humiliating, degrading experience. So they try and humiliate you and degrade you as much as they possibly can on the first day. So we all met up, right, about 6am in the morning at the Homerton Docks. And to get started, I had to eat 10 raw eggs. And then I had to down two shots of vodka simultaneously, one through the nose and the other through the eye. And then it was off to the first pub, and the day really began there. Right. What did you have to do there? Well, by that time, it was about 8.30, so we uh, played the Today programme, Drinking Game. That's where every time John Humphreys repeats a question, you have to do a shot. And every time he touched, you have to down your pint, and so on and so forth. But 
By the time it got to 9 o'clock, I could barely see straight. I knew that if I didn't average five units of alcohol an hour, I'd get kicked out. Wow, sounds tough. Heavy going? Ah, it was fine. I just kept thinking to myself, if you don't do this, you'll have to do choir. If you don't do this, you'll have to do choir. And that got me through okay. I went through a sticky spell about midday when I threw up for about an hour. So off that I had to up the rate, but I got through it in the end. Congratulations, it's quite an achievement. Gone on your first swap yet? No, I'm actually going tonight. The lads told me to get ten bottles of red wine and a wet towel and meet them at the Trinity Saunas. It's going to be wild! I felt remarkably disappointed after I left my interview with young Chris. I felt certain there were key facts and insights he had hidden from me, most likely because of a strict drinking society code of secrecy. I wondered whether a trained psychiatrist would be able to give me a more in-depth analysis. I had found out what these young men do, but not why they do it. I approached Dr. Felix Danchek, lecturer in psychology, to ask him why he thought so many of our young Cambridge men wanted to sign their lives away. The principal motivation is obvious, I must say, and I'm constantly surprised by the sheer amount of nonsense spoken on this subject, even by the highest academics and scholars. Young males sign up for drinking societies because of repressed homosexuality. It's simple. Principally motivated by memories of childhood, sexual longings for a paternal figure are almost never fulfilled, and many young men carry such latent desires their entire lives. The drinking society offers students the chance to experience that daddy time they always desired. They can engage in bonding time together, and take on highly masculine tasks and activities. After the consumption of several pints, and now universally recognised replacement for the phallus, they stagger around the city streets together, taking opportune moments to grope and fondle to their heart's content. This is all well understood and documented in numerous psychiatric journals. In fact, some students are members of drinking societies for such a long period that they turn their repressed sexual fantasies onto their grandfathers instead. The boys who were abused by their fathers, on the other hand, they sign up for debating. I must admit that I was extremely convinced by Dr. Danchek's arguments. However, his case studies had not considered the existence of the university's many all-female drinking societies. We've learned what motivates men to join up, but what about their bosomed counterparts? I must admit, I'm a bit of an amateur psychologist myself, and I've pieced together a theory. Is it possible that the female drinking sock is the 21st century expression of Freudian theory of penis envy? Female students, in their innocence, see around the university young male students showing off their frothing, foamy pints, and cannot bear the thought of missing out on the piece of the action. I asked a member of the Homerton Hags to elaborate. I'll do it for the men! No, 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 seriously, I'll do it for the men! It's just so, so, you know, fit. I interviewed over 20 female drinkers, and that was the most intelligent response I could get. By this point in my investigation, I had realised that being in a drink sock is fun, no doubt about it. But I was curious, what happens to long-term members? They cannot remain in the prime of their lives forever. Eventually they have to leave the society they've called their home. But is it possible to recover one's state of mental well-being in such cases of serious abandonment? I asked one ex-member of a prominent drink sock, who decided to remain anonymous for reasons of privacy. How had long-term commitment to his heavy drinking lifestyle affected him? I was the leader of the Trinity Tits. When I joined up, everything was great. I was popular, went out every night. Just living life. Then my kidney started failing. It was all downhill from there. Started falling behind with me work. Every time I tried to sit down and write an essay. 
The gin was calling me. I started missing supervisions, shouting stuff out in lectures. My essay titles got weirder and weirder. To what extent did Isaac Newton invent the space opera? In the end, I left uni after five years of a 2-2. It was a bloody disaster. For this is the real truth of the drinking society, my friends. When the swaps have stopped, the hangovers have passed away, and the homosexual innuendo has been dampened, what is left? What remains of the bright, intelligent, strapping young men who signed up during Freshers' Week with such dreams, such potential, such vision? I'll tell you what's left. A bunch of loud-mouthed, Drunken oiks, an entire generation of alcoholic failures being created before our very eyes, putting the very future of this great university into disrepute, as we just stand by, idle, watching it happen. What's become of the Cambridge social scene of decades gone by, when a group of young lads could congregate nightly for tea and crumpets, talking about chess, politics, debating issues of great social significance over a lightly toasted German sausage. They were the best of times, they were the worst of times. But now they've gone, and I believe the time has come to say no more. We can set drinking society straight again, restore the innocence of our lost youth, but I need your help. The next time you see the Trinity Tits or the St. John's Johnnies out on a swap, approach them and confront them. Look them straight in the eye and say, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. You don't have to drink. You don't have to waste your life away like this. I believe in you. I believe you can do better. You can change their lives, listeners. Show them there is another way to live. And me? I plan to go one step further, to eradicate those blood-sucking, career-ruining societies myself. I hereby issue a challenge to any member of any drink sock university-wide. A drink-off. Man-on-man, king versus queen. The person who downs the most shots in two minutes will be the victor. If you win, I'll give up this radio show, leave Cambridge, and live out the rest of my days in Warwick under abject poverty and total obscurity. But if I win, then you take your horrid little game over to Oxford and suck the life out of their undergraduates instead. I have issued the challenge. Come and have a go, if you think you're hard enough. I'm sure we all know a little bit more about that subject now, so thank you, me. Thank you. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've just heard news regarding the pro-Gaza sit-in happening at the Faculty of Law. It's a waste of time. This is the art of the matter. Earlier this week, I received a phone call from Ben Gadsby, treasurer of the Cambridge Union, demanding that I meet him in a nearby travelodge. Luckily, I happened to ring a microphone, so he taped an interview as well. For heaven's sake, for heaven's sake, please enjoy. to say that for 800 years the University of Cambridge has been living in a financial dream world. Our good name has been synonymous with luxury, with comfort and ease. A student never came to Cambridge to work hard or to make their way in the world, but to experience the high life. Our food was top-notch, our servants well-groomed and our bank balances healthy. But earlier this year we awoke from this dream with a bang. The credit crunch hit and the university lost £11 million it had invested in Icelandic banks. 
Suddenly, wild predictions were being made by economics undergrads left, right and centre. It seemed that no faculty, no society was safe from the threat of financial extinction. In these turbulent times, we need a guide, a hero, someone to pull us through. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Ben Gadsby, Treasurer of the Union. Welcome. Hello. Difficult times, no? Definitely. But before we begin discussing problems and solutions, I must remind you that this is not just a Cambridge issue. The educational credit crunch is international. It's gone as far as Harvard and the University of Nether Stowe. And I must say that recent attempts to pin the blame for the crisis solely on the so-called mistakes made by the Cambridge Union are shallow and pedantic. That sounds suspiciously like an excuse to me. Are you attempting to duck your responsibilities? Not at all. We at the Union are more than happy to step up to the plate regarding any matters where we have shown to be at fault. It just turns out that we never are. Got it? Fine, fine. Let's begin with the short-term situation. Big predictions are being made. Some people expect the entire university to go under. How do you think Cambridge will change and adapt, say, within the next few months? I wish I could sit here and give sunny predictions of financial turnaround, but I can't. This term will be the tipping point. Age-old institutions, which we've all assumed would last forever, may have no option but to go into administration. Really? Can you give us names? Well, I'm not supposed to. Uh, but because you agreed not to mention the thing, you know, with the chicken, I can. I've got just three words for you. Faculty of Law. The Faculty of Law? Surely that can't go under. I, I always thought it was impenetrable. What's gone wrong? Look at it this way. You're the Chancellor. You're in charge of everything that happens in this entire university. But you're short of money. So you need to cut back your budgets. Which to get rid of? The Faculty of Oriental Studies, nice, quiet, never caused anyone any trouble. The Faculty of Maths, nerdy, but productive. Or the Faculty of Law, an overpopulated cesspit of controversy and sexual oppression. All those lawyers can enjoy their anti-Israelite sit-in while it's still going on. It's going to be their last. Wow. What do you think will happen to the law students after the faculty's been closed down? Well, none of them will have degrees, so we'll probably just end up using them for cleaning jobs or manual labour. Maybe even handing out copies of Varsity. Believe you me, everyone from King's will be joining them soon enough, sure as mustard. But surely there's something we can do to help these people. Can't the hundreds of students listening right now pitch in with the uni's financial difficulties? Do you not have any money-saving tips? The crucial thing is to reduce the frivolous expenditure. No one is asking anyone to go without the essentials, but it is imperative that you all cut out the things you don't really need. The student body is frittering away money that, which could be donated to help keep Claire Sellers afloat or stop Cindy's going bust. A recent varsity survey demonstrated that the average student spends as much as £200 a term. This can certainly be reduced. You know the sort of purchase I'm talking about. Pens, paper, books, food, your bike, your clothes. <laughs> all unnecessary. In fact, research at this very university has shown that all a resourceful needs to obtain a first is a backpack and a hunk of chalk. Also, I'm afraid the uni must rethink its clubs and societies policies. Some of the current social groups are far too frivolous with money. Does the Blues football team really think we can carry on spending a fortune mowing their precious lawn? Does the Film Society really expect us to subsidise their near-constant DVD rental? We are in need of a new breed of society. Cost-efficient but fun. Or as I like to say, thrifty but nifty. What about an improvised outdoor theatre club? 
or a meet in Cafe Nero until you get kicked out for not buying anything, society. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why are you putting so much pressure onto us? You're the treasurer of the union, for Pete's sake. What are you doing to help the situation? I'm extremely glad you've asked that. We've been locked in debate for weeks now, and we're on the verge of putting our three-point plan for financial security into action. Okay, sounds good. What's that? Okay, point one. Shut the union library. There have been far too many anyway, and it's insane to keep valuable books so close to a room where people are constantly getting pissed. The whole system's too bloody complicated anyhow. Faculties A through E, departments Y through Z, cut the bollocks. There's at least £200 worth of fire paper in there. Bin it. Burn it. Point two. In times of great financial difficulty, nothing shores up a big company faster than a pointless buyout of a local lightweight. That's why we've decided to become majority shareholders in Anglia Ruskin. Once people see we're throwing our weight around and outpricing the competition, the confidence and morale of the entire student body will rise indefatigably. Wow, but what will you do with it? Oh, we're not sure yet. We're thinking of turning it into a prison or a gay bar. The vote should be in by the end of the week. Excellent. So what about the long-term answers? Okay, so this is the genius bit. To ensure that this noble institution's future can match its past, we do nothing. What? Precisely nothing. You do nothing. Exactly. Sit tight, lock ourselves in the union bar with 150 bottles of gin, and sit out the credit crunch. Occupy ourselves playing Perudo or pool, riding around the new upstairs skate park, formerly the library, and just generally living the life of ease. You're kidding. Nope. But what about what about your members, the, the people who paid money for your services? What are you going to do about them? You can't just leave them to face the winter of their discontent. Oh, it's worse than that. If we shut our doors, people will be left desolate. No handouts, no textbooks, nothing. So they'll fight. They'll be forced to scrap for food, for clothing, for internet access. The streets of Cambridge will be a battlefield. No one will be safe. Many of our citizens will be forced to scrap for the final copy of Vivid. Some of them will die. This is the University of Darwin. And the time has come for us to form our own survival tournament. The victors can form an academic super race. Think of it. The students who survived the long, cold winter of 2009, united, together, free from the scum and the dross who couldn't make the grade. Cambridge will once again be the finest university in the land. Cleverer than Oxford, more exclusive than Harvard, tougher even than Cardiff. Think of what we could achieve. Think how far we could go. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is disgusting. It's, it's obscene. And what's more, it, it won't ever work. You don't have the power. You don't have any... Well, you'll need a... Well, well actually... You'll need a media analyst, won't you? Filled that post yet? Nope! Will you take my application? Exclusively! Ben Gadsby, Treasurer of the Union. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. If you enjoyed this offering of Wittertainment, you'll be delighted to know that all past and future instalments will be available as podcasts. To find out more, please log on to www.cambridgecomedy.blogspot.com. That's www.cambridgecomedy.blogspot.com. Next week's show will include a lecture on the Cambridge Footlights. But, as will soon be traditional, as long as we don't get cancelled, I will leave you with a fable. A man was walking along a beach, and when he turned round, he could see his entire life stretching back along the path he had taken. There were two sets of footprints leading through his memories, one belonging to him, the other belonging to God. But the man noticed that, at difficult times in his life, there was only one set of footprints in the sand. 
He got very angry. He screamed, Why, God? Why did you leave me at the time I needed you most? Why is there just one set of footprints? Why? But God said, Son, those were not the times I left you. Those were the times that we hopped. Goodbye. Thank you.